Suffreaks, it's your boy Marty Bent here to introduce this rip of TFTC. I sat down with Ben Hart. Very interesting story. Founded the Dartmouth Review back in the 80s. Very successful advertising campaign. Found Bitcoin. Rocked Bitcoin pretty quickly. Understands it. Is advocating for it. Recently blew up in the social media sphere due to uh, back and forth with his daughter. Fascinating conversation. Fun conversation. This was brought to you by our good friends. River. River is the best, the easiest place to buy Bitcoin, the most secure place to buy Bitcoin because River builds their own infrastructure. There's no trusted third parties. They're getting their own licenses. They're building their own wallets. You can DCA easily into Bitcoin using River. And if you do so, you're not going to pay any fees on those bu those buys. You can set limit orders. Um, you can see here the price is at $62,174. Pretty volatile the last two days. Maybe you don't want to smash buy right away. You want to set a limit order. You think the price could go below where it is now. River makes it easy to say, hey, when it hits $61,500, buy $100 worth of Bitcoin for me. They also have River Link, which is the easiest way to give Bitcoin, a lot of your friends and family, like, how do I get Bitcoin? How do I get Bitcoin? Maybe you could be like, hey, here's River Link. Here's a link from River. Click the link, sweep the Bitcoin to a wallet of your choice. Like, boom, you have Bitcoin. Start learning about it. So go to river.com slash TFTC. Sign up today. Best place to stack sats. Price is ripping. You need to get in. What exchange can you trust? River is the exchange that you can trust. River.com slash TFTC. This rip was also brought to you by good friends down the hall, Unchained. Unchained is also doing it the right way. They're building their whole platform on Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties. Uh, they have their vault product, which is a two or three multi-sig vault where you hold two keys, Unchain holds one. It's a collaborative custody model. You eliminate single points of failure in your custody setup. It's a beautiful thing. Beyond that, they had their Bitcoin IRA product. The ETFs, a lot of people think, are driving the price a bit higher here. Uh, you have an IRA. Maybe you're thinking about, oh, do I just buy the Bitcoin ETF? You should hold your own keys. Unchained makes it easy. Uh, and you set up your IRA. The fees are much lower than the ETFs, and you actually hold UTXOs in a two or three multi-sig vault. You, you have control of your Bitcoin, unlike the ETF where uh, BlackRock and Fidelity have control of the Bitcoin. You have shares in the ETF. So if you're going to get into Bitcoin, do it the right way. Hit up the people at Unchained. They have their vault. They have the IRA. They have a trading desk. You can buy Bitcoin and send it directly to cold storage, multi-sig cold storage. It's a beautiful thing. They're doing it the right way, building the financial platform for Bitcoin standard. Go to unchained.com slash consultation to learn more about all their products. Tell them the TFTC sent you. This rip was also brought to our, brought to you, brought to our, brought to you by our good friends at ZapRite. ZapRite is here. Maybe you don't want to buy Bitcoin. Maybe you're done buying Bitcoin, you're a business, you're a lawyer, you're a dentist, you're a doctor, you're a rancher. How can you stack sats? You can accept Bitcoin as payment and ZapRite makes this extremely easy. They are an invoicing and accounting software. You plug in your wallet, they're wallet agnostic. You might have a strike account. You might have uh, a BTC pay server, an LND node. You just have a treasure cold card with a an XPUB that you want to dump in. You put all that information into ZapRite and they create invoices for you. They create payment links for you. They're, they're building on this. They have a WooCommerce integration as well. And the best part about it is you can replace your incumbent invoicing software with ZapRite because they also accept fiat payments. So 
if you're a Bitcoiner out there who wants to stack more Bitcoin, you don't want to buy it, you should start receiving it as payment, okay? So if you're a doctor, lawyer, dentist, rancher, you own a website that uses WooCommerce, start accepting Bitcoin payments. ZapRate makes it extremely easy. It's impeccably designed. They never control your funds. They don't have any control of your funds. It's just a, a, an invoicing software on top of the wallets that you bring to ZapRate. Um, and so go set up an account today. Go to zapratecom slash TFTC. Use the code TFTC at checkout and you're going to get $40 off their annual subscription. It's time to do it. It's time to do it, freak. Start accepting Bitcoin. Best way to stack Bitcoin. We do it here at TFTC. We love ZapRate. Last but not least, this rip is brought to you by Bitcoin Talent Co., a recruiting firm built by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. Bull markets here. Maybe you have a lot of Bitcoin on your balance sheet as a company. Your runway has just been extended by months, potentially years, depending on how efficient you are with your berm. And now you're looking to hire people. Go to BitcoinTalent.co. Tell them the TFTC sent you. Get hooked up with Andy and team there. They have incredible recruiting experience, and they will be able to find you the talent you need to build out your company, whether you're building a payments app, uh, a finance platform, uh, a mining company. These are Bitcoiners that really understand the industry. And not only that, they understand how to go find the best talent in the world to bring them to the industry. So go to BitcoinTalent.co, tell them the TFTC sent you and get set up today with their team. Enjoy this road with Ben. Incredible guy. Okay. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Well, we can't include it because we weren't recording. Ben Hart, welcome to the show. Thank you, Marty. You were just having great a pre year. It's great to have you. I mean, it's been a, I'm sure it's been an insane couple of weeks for you. It um, has. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Getting uh, Elon. Elon is a, a mainstay in your, in your replies now. <laughs> right. He's, he's replied to two of my posts <laughs> on this whole dust, this dust up with my daughter, uh, I don't know if you want me to go into that, but is this is that something and you want me to go into a little bit? If you don't, it it depends if you're comfortable, and I don't want you to feel forced. <laughs> yeah, to talk I'm about just gonna. Just, so what happened was, and um, what happened was, I woke up at six a.m. You know, as I usually do, pour myself a cup of coffee, open my, get ready to do some work, some writing, because uh, I I actually uh, I'm in the advertising business. That's my profession, and so I open up my laptop computer and I go online, and I'm just greeted with an avalanche of just really negative comments about me. You're a deadbeat dad. You knew you abandoned your family and all this stuff. And, 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 and actually those are the best comments that kind of went down from there. And it was thousands of these comments and I'm wondering what the heck is going on here. And so after a few minutes of uh, investigation, uh, I find out that my daughter who is a writer out in Hollywood, she, uh, she's writing a show for P or helping to write a show for NBC Peacock streaming. She graduated from college uh, from Northwestern university and, 2021 and so she had posted this video on me and the first part of the video was actually very funny she said my and it was about sort of family trauma that was a theme and her trauma was that 
her dad um, in his 50s abandoned the uh, abandoned or in his 40s in his 50s abandoned the family to pursue break dancing, which is a kind of a funny uh, storyline. wasn't true, but it was a funny storyline. But during the course of the video, she said I wasn't paying medical bills and implied that I was a deadbeat dad. And uh, and uh, and so the comments. She didn't actually say I was a deadbeat dad, but that's what the, the commenters all interpreted that way. So, uh, and of course, I wasn't a deadbeat dad. I was in the advertising business. I had paid. Uh, we got divorced. I got divorced from her mom in 2005, and I paid the mil uh, the family millions of dollars in alimony and child support, and put six hundred thousand dollars or so into a college fund. And I just lived down the street. Literally, just lived a mile, mile and a half or so down the street. Sidewalks all the way easy walk or bike ride if they chose to do that. Uh, and I saw the kids all the time. So the video wasn't correct. So I, I get in touch with Maddie and I say, look, Maddie, I, I did like a lot of this video. The storyline was funny. You know how dad left my family for uh, to pursue break dancing. <laughs> and uh, but I said, you know, I don't really care about that, but I do care about the deadbeat dad implication. So what I'd like you to do is take this video down and, uh, and correct it. You know, it can be just as funny without that. And she refused to do that because by that time her video had gone viral. It had gotten 7 million views on TikTok alone and was just basically all over the internet, all over YouTube and so forth. And so I said, so I said, okay, I'm going to have to make a response video. I said to myself, I have to make a response video to this very gentle. Uh, and the video I came out with was very gentle. It just corrected those few inaccuracies. And it was very pro Maddie. And it even said, I, I love the video. I love 98% of her video. I just didn't like the implication that I was a deadbeat dad. So uh, at first, the video just had like a couple hundred views. And I, I pointed out to Maddie. And, and Maddie actually liked the video. She, she, she texted back, haha, that was funny. Um, and I said, what I'd like you to do, if you're not going to take down your video, and, and correct it, at least put my video up on your feed so that your viewers can see it, you know, because you've got millions of viewers and uh, I'd like, I'd like it, I'd like them to see this video, but she declined to do that. And uh, so then my video went viral, uh, it, you know, within 12 hours, I think it had a million views on X, then 5 million views, then 10 million views on up to 30 million views. And I think Elon weighed in with a comment that said, you're awesome. And, um, and then that was around when it had hit 10 million views, I think. And uh, then it, that propelled it, of course, to 33 million views. And then I started getting uh, really angry messages from her mom, from my ex-wife, uh, just screed, take your video down, take your video down. And um, I said, well, I'll take it down if Maddie takes her video down. Um, you know, her video is still up. So I need to have my video, which corrects the record, which at least corrects the record. Then she went up with a very much more negative video, which was filled with more inaccuracies. And so I, uh, I came back with a follow-up video to that, which just was basically home movies, videos that I had taken when they were growing up as kids, where we were going on vacations together, going to the beach, going to water parks, skiing, um, we, you know, going to a Yellowstone park and just on and on. And just, it was kind of a, a, the videos were kind of a chronicle of her life and, and the life of my kids with me. And it showed them at every different stage of life, graduation, you know, graduation from middle school, graduation from high school, graduation from college, fun dinners out. In fact, we, we all had a Christmas dinner together just this last Christmas, a few weeks ago, and everybody's sitting around the table. I have photos of that, of course. And, 
and uh, everybody's smiling and, and just very happy. So as far as I was concerned, I had a I had a tremendous relationship with with my daughter, with Maddie, you know, the one who's who did all, who is working in Hollywood. And I'll just go. Uh, I have to find. Okay, so and we're we're texting back and forth all the time. Our, our conversations, literally. Even though we disagree on politics, uh, we actually had a very good relationship, and um, and so, you know, the the conversations are like this. They just go mm-hmm. and go and go. And she's telling me about what's happening in her day and how she's uh, her her channel is really taking off, and she's she's created some merch, some T-shirts that people can buy, and so on. And she sends me photos of that, and that's cool. And I give her video, I give her tips on her videos, and she's becoming. She has a she has a job there at. Uh, uh, NBC Peacock screen, streaming, but uh, as a side hustle, she's building a kind of a social media presence, uh, and she's making a little bit of money of that. And she with that, and she lo- and she likes doing it. And I love the fact that she's doing it. I I, I think I, I think it's awesome what she's doing, even though I don't agree with the content of the videos a lot of times. But that's basically what happened. And so then the second video also got a couple million views, maybe three million views on X and. And everybody was doing podcasts on it and reacting to it on YouTube and on TikTok and everywhere. And so basically, it seemed like everybody in America was talking about this. Meanwhile, some people questioned, well, should I have even put up a video at all? And, you know, I'm in the, in the advertising business. I built an ad agency and I have clients. And uh, a lot of my clients had seen her video, her initial video. So I did need to correct the record and say, you know, well, this is, you know, I think her video is funny and it's kind of cool, but I do need to correct these in- inaccuracies. Otherwise, you know, a lot of people are going to wonder, you know, why are we doing business with this guy if he's, you know, abandoned his family for breakdancing <laughs> and he, <laughs> and, he uh, and he is and he's a deadbeat dad and isn't pay these paying these bills. And even, you know, uh, even when she was launching off, she graduated from college in 2021, I guess May of 2021, and she needed um, kind of startup money to get out to L.A. and get an apartment out there. And so I gave her $5,000 in kind of adulthood startup money and uh, co-signed a lease on her apartment. And I was paying a lot of her medical costs because she didn't have insurance. And and uh, so there was, <laughs> I was definitely paying out a lot and also uh, uh, helped her buy a car. I used a uh, Ford Fiesta. Gave, uh, gave her $2,500 for that. Her mom also kept, kicked in $2,500, and I think Maddie kicked in some money. And uh, so used car, and uh, so she could drive out to L.A. And uh, then, but, you know, it's, then there was a writer's strike. The right, there was the Hollywood writer's strike, and so she was laid off temporarily for that. Well, really for about six months. And uh, she needed some money weekly just so she could stay in her apartment. Otherwise, she said she was going to have to come home uh, and live with her mom until the strike ended. So could I help out with some money? So I gave her $250 a week, uh, I guess for about 10 weeks. And then she got a, she got a job at Netflix, uh, which was not affected by the writer's strike for some, for some reason. And then uh, she worked there until the writer's strike ended. And then she got her old job back at uh, Peacock Streaming, working on the show that she was working on. Uh, so you know, uh, my dad, uh, let's see, when I graduated from college, my dad just did, he was done at that point. I didn't get a penny. And, and uh, I think that's how it was for every kid or most kids back in those days. You know, the, the parents just threw the kid into the deep end of the swimming pool and see if they could make it. I mean, that was basically the attitude. And so then I took a bus to Washington, D.C. and 
uh, maybe a bus and a train and got down there with the few dollars I had and got a job. And I think that's how most people did. I rented, rented a room for $135 a, a month in the, like a really bad area of Washington, D.C. and just kind of worked up that way. Uh, and that's, I think, how, but you know, the, the apartments today, you know, I don't know what Maddie's paying for her place, but I think it's close to 2000 a month or 1500 a month. So, you know, that definitely wasn't my life coming out of school. And I don't think it's most people's lives. No, well, that's, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's many roads that go down here. And I think for the context <laughs> oh, of this yeah, conversation, there's so, many road, there's so many roads, yeah. Around Bitcoin, so there's two things. Like, I'm really interested to get your thoughts, having been in the advertising industry, for many decades, like the emergence of social media and this sort mm -hmm. of influencer driven marketing and the concerted effort to create viral videos to build an audience and then get uh, brands to sponsor you so that you can make some money right. off of this. Like what are the incentives like there and has it corrupted media and advertising at all? Or is it good? Is it a double-edged sword? Um, well, one of then, my mantras, one of my mantras is, and I, I I bought a little bit of Ethereum at first and, and kind of on the, I'm an investor, a tech investor. I invest in technology and, you know, generally the approach is you invest in the two leaders and you see which one wins. You know, you invest in Google and Yahoo. You don't just invest in Google. You just see, and then one emerges or, you know, you invest in MySpace and Facebook and see which one emerges. And so my uh, approach was, okay, uh, maybe do two thirds in Bitcoin because it's the leader and maybe a third in Ethereum. But the more I studied it and one of the reasons I wrote this book, Bitcoin, a beginner's guide, let me just pump my book real quick. <laughs> yep. Bitcoin, a beginner's guide is I really wanted to um, say why Bitcoin was different from all the other cryptos, because Bitcoin was is the King Kong of crypto, but really it's the King Kong even more of decentralized digital money. And I think, as you know, Marty, uh, Bitcoin is 95% of the uh, of the market of the market in the decentralized digital money space. It's really the only digital money, and all the other projects are centralized. Uh, I mean, there's a few that maybe not, you know, Litecoin and a few other cryptos that are very small, maybe Monero. I don't know. Uh, but they're very small networks, and the smaller the network, the more vulnerable it is to attack. Uh, so Bitcoin, the bigger it gets, the more secure it gets. You know, China tried to outlaw Bitcoin in 2021, outlawed mining, well, outlawed Bitcoin mining, outlawed Bitcoin transactions, and all the miners left China, all the miners in China. And at that time, China was do uh, sixty percent of the Bitcoin mining was being done in China, and then it went down to zero. And the hash rate, the compute power, the hash rate for Bitcoin for the Bitcoin network dropped a lot. Uh, but then it came back really quite quickly as these Chinese miners miners they moved out of China. They took their rigs and they reset up their operations in places like Kazakhstan and the United States and many other places, Afghanistan and so on. You know, Africa, wherever, uh, Middle East wherever they could uh, find some place to do, do mining. And, um, and so the hash rate came back. And, and so that would told me that told me that, you know, Bitcoin is basically indestructible because if China with 1.2 billion people and it's a totalitarian regime, if China cannot kill Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin can't be killed. And, and then mining Bitcoin mining came back in China. You know, I think 20% or so of the Bitcoin mining in the world is now being done in China. So the Chinese government, the China regime, 
gave up on cracking down on Bitcoin because it was just a, a waste of effort for for the for the regime. So it just decided to okay, I guess we'll allow it. <laughs> we won't crack we won't crack down on it on it anymore. And so that was also very persuasive to me that Bitcoin is probably indestructible at this point. Mm-hmm. And that makes it a secure investment. But it seems like, considering your history, I think maybe we should talk about what we were discussing before we hit record is the fact that you helped launch the Dartmouth Review back when you were in college in 1982 uh, or 80, 1980. Yeah, you graduated, yeah, 1980, in, 82. graduated in 82, right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I started, uh, me and a small group of people, and some names you might have heard of were part of this effort. Laura Ingraham, she's the mm-hmm. host on Fox News. She was part of this. She was like, uh, four or five years younger than me, uh, so she came. But anyway, we started this paper, a conservative right of center, I would say conservative libertarian, uh, or just people interested in freedom. Uh, we started this paper, which was kind of a, a right of center national lampoon. There was a lot of humor in it. Uh, like half the paper was kind of humor and the other parts were investigative reporting about what was happening on campus. And one of my rules, I was the I was the president and publisher of the paper and there were four others uh, five others, I think, that were co-founders, is uh, I wanted the paper to be only about Dartmouth, what was happening on the Dartmouth campus, because nobody cares about what, uh, you know, a 20-year-old thinks about world events. But we were reporting on what was going on on campus, and we were able to get a hold of the alumni mailing list. Well, first we applied for funding, you know, to, to be subsidized by the college, and they turned us down, even though they're subsidizing every other group, but just not us. And so we got a hold of the alumni directory and we key punched it in, had it, had it key punched into a computer database. And of course, computers back then were very primitive, but we got it in and we, and we did a mailing out to 45,000 Dartmouth alumni and uh, asking for, uh, you know, support for the paper. And like, uh, I think a hundred thousand dollars came in, <laughs> you know, which was a lot of money. I'd never seen that much money before in my life. So, and that really launched the paper and we were able to buy offices and uh, we'd put out a few issues by then. And the college really reacted negatively. They tried to, tr- they really tried to crack down on the paper. Tried to, tried to put the paper out of business. They threatened us with lawsuits, and uh, we were in court. And they tried to prevent. They used the campus police to prevent distribution of the paper on on the campus. And of course, that actually just made the paper a lot more popular. People wanted to get their hands on it. It's like I can't get, I can't didn't get my issue with the paper because the uh, the police picked it up. The campus police. And so you know, we would slide the paper under people's. We'd go around to each dorm door to each the door of each dorm room and we slide the paper under it but sometimes you know you couldn't slide paper under the door so you know the campus police would come along and pick it up so that and then we also left it we also left the paper at local stores stores that supported us and we also the paper was also supported by advertising we went around to the stores and asked for advertising and the ones that liked us would advertise and they would also stack up the paper like at the Dartmouth bookstore the Dartmouth bookstore was run was run by a, a conservative entrepreneur type and he loved the Dartmouth review and he always advertised and he, he always had the paper stacked up there at the Dartmouth bookstore so we were definitely able to get the paper out the paper was the first uh, student conservative paper that, or I'd say the most successful and the first, it's still publishing today, by the way, it's still publishing, you know, 40 years later. And, uh, and so it just became kind of a, I think maybe 150 other papers, conservative or right-leaning, freedom-leaning papers sprang up on campuses kind of in the wake of the Dartmouth Review. And, um, and uh, so it really became a phenomenon, like 60 Minutes did a piece on us, which actually was surprisingly positive. I think they came in, you know, trying to, present us as a bunch of racists or something like that. But once they got 
talking to us, they saw, hey, that was pretty cool. And it was a pretty uh, balanced, that was actually a pretty balanced piece on, on 60 Minutes. And it was just a, a media kind of sensation back then. And I, I then wrote a book called Poisoned Ivy, my senior year at Dartmouth, uh, just on this totalitarian mindset that was developing on the liberal side. You know, liberals used to be for freedom. You had the free speech movement at the Berkeley campus during the uh, Vietnam War protests, you know, against the draft. Uh, the fr so they were for free speech, you know, the ACLU, uh, American Civil Liberties Union, for civil liberties, for free speech. So in the 60s and the 70s, early 70s, the liberals, the left side was all about freedom, you know, all about civil liberties. But what I point out in my book in Poison Ivy is that when they actually get in charge of something, uh, they aren't for freedom anymore. Uh, they don't want to have uh, conservative speakers on the campus or freedom-oriented speakers on the campus. They, uh, they'll be like, they'll shout you down. Uh, and you've seen that, of course. And it's, it's of course, intensified a lot more uh, now. At Dartmouth, the student body was pretty conservative. Uh, we, we did a poll of students back then, and I think 60 percent were for Reagan. Uh, of course, the college professors are very much on the left. The, the college professors, uh, they had a faculty meeting and they voted, um, I think it was a, I think it was 190 to five, you know, to condemn the election of Ronald Reagan. So there was that. But I, it, the book points out that really the origins of this totalitarian mindset is this what I call victims studies departments that were rising up on the camp on the campuses, particularly the Ivy League campuses at that time, or the elite colleges, like women's studies, uh, uh, black studies, Native American studies, gay and lesbian studies, and all these groups. And the, at that time, these departments were very small, maybe a few professors, uh, but they were very vocal, and uh, they would be involved in organizing these protests and so forth. And and uh you know so that so i noticed that this this group this they they would they would get professors fired for saying the wrong thing uh if you had the wrong views you know you could not be a you could not be a woman and not be a feminist and get a job in the women's studies department you know uh margaret thatcher would not be respected by the women's studies department even though she was a just tremendously influential uh and tremendous leader a tremendous in a uh, woman female leader they, they should be proud of that but so i noticed that that it, it's not women's studies it's just left-wing studies <laughs> you know it's just left-wing indoctrination and same with all these other what i would call victim studies departments and and of course as time went on they get, became more and more powerful and and we see how powerful they are today uh you know the these giant corporations for fortune 500 corporations in response to this have had to set up entire departments, you know, uh, divisions that do nothing but, uh, you know, um, enforce this, what is it, diversity, equity, and inclusion, this this kind of woke ideology. And so, you know, that's what's happening. And, and of course, uh, Google uh, and these big tech companies, Google, Microsoft, and so forth, their biggest customer is the government. And yeah, the CIA was basically started by, uh, I mean, the uh, Google was basically launched by the CIA. Yeah, it was launched on its own with venture capital and so forth. But the CIA was the biggest customer of Google and, uh, and, and, and is the biggest customer of Microsoft and Amazon. And so really what you have emerging now is this big tech partnership with government, with big government. And they want to put a, a, a lid on free speech because free speech is basically, you know, civilization survives when when we have free speech and uh that's why they hate elon musk so much uh because what elon musk did was with his purchase of twitter now x for 44 billion dollars he put his money where his mouth was he really believes in freedom and uh he provide a 
a, a rather large, a, a very large platform where free speech is actually allowed. And that's why they're coming after him so hard with Biden administration, I think, has has eight investigations of Elon Musk underway now, some of them criminal investigations, and almost all of these started as a result of his purchase of Twitter because they cannot let the truth out. If you let the truth out, you know, it's kind of, they're kind of done. Um, so so that's basically it. So I'm, I kind of went from, you know, Dartmouth Review, and, and my book really is the first book to talk about this woke mind virus, which is the totalitarian mindset on the left. They're no longer for freedom. And uh, I called it the ethos. That's what I call. I called it the ethos. I, I didn't call it woke. That wasn't a term that existed. But I developed this term, the ethos, or maybe I, I just thought it was kind of a cool term, yeah, because it's not just about your political views. It's not just about who you vote for. You know, whether you're for Biden or you're for Trump or you're for RFK Jr. or somebody else. Uh, it's not about your political affiliation. So that's of course part of it. It, you have to think exactly right, you know. And if you if you make even a slight slip up, you know, you use the wrong word. You know, is it supposed to be black people? Is it supposed to be African American people? Uh, is it supposed to be people of color? And of course, these terms change all the time. So if you use an outmoded term, term, you know, <laughs> you're a racist <laughs> or something like that. And uh, you know, so they really enforce these speech codes. Uh, and it's all about it's really Orwellian because when you when you control the language and when you enforce speech codes, what you're really doing is brainwashing people uh, because uh, that has an impact on your thinking. How you speak impacts how you think uh, because if thought, uh, when you speak, it's really just an expression of what you're thinking. And if they can just control speech uh, with these speech codes, then they can really shape the country because most people, they, they don't really think for themselves. They're not critical thinkers. They aren't, they kind of just believe what the government says, or they just believe what CNN says. And, you know, and by the way, a great follow Marty is, uh, is a guy named Mike Benz. And he talks about how oh, yes. uh, these big media companies are basically CIA operations. And I, I didn't fully appreciate this, uh, until I started following Benz. I mean, I kind of suspected it, but that's been going on since, you know, the 1950s or really coming out of world war two. Um, when the CIA, uh, the intelligence agencies, uh, a big part of what the intelligence does is is control narratives, and uh, you know they're doing this as offensive weapons against our our military enemies. You know whether it was Hitler in that day, in that time or uh, communism and so forth. So uh, in some ways it was good. We kind of liked it back then that the CIA was destabilizing uh, regimes that we didn't like with propaganda and by controlling the narrative. Uh, but back then there were only really three major TV networks: CBS, ABC, um, NBC, and uh, so they could really dictate what people were thinking. And, and of course, during World War II, the media was very patriotic, right? Uh, so we don't mind that. Great, you know, patriotism. Um, but then what's happened recently, and Mike Benz really chronicles this tremendously, is uh, they've turned the intelligence agencies against us, against the American people. Uh, and they're trying to tamp down any kind of alternative viewpoint. And, uh, and they are, you know, if there's a reason why the talking points on the major media networks are all identical. I mean, every day it's like just a set of talking points. You know, it's just they just repeat, repeat, repeat the same talking points. There's no original thought. And that is the propaganda that's coming directly from the intelligence agencies. I mean, it's not just not only the intelligence agencies, but it's being controlled largely by that. And of course, it's filtered through the political parties and so forth. So, um, so that's that's what's happening, and and Bitcoin, you know, and I say that Bitcoin is really one of the off ramps from that because whoever controls your money controls you, uh, and uh, so Bitcoin is an escape from that. It's 
Bitcoin is not governed or controlled by humans. Uh, humans are prone to corruption and they want power and, and you know. So Bitcoin is your off-ramp from that. And, uh, you know, I'm not all the way like Max Kaiser who thinks that Bitcoin is going to, you know, just collapse government, collapse the need for government. And, you know, everything's going to be all, all fiat currency is going to be sucked into Bitcoin. I don't think that. I don't really want that to happen. I want the United States to still exist. I want to have a secure border. Uh, I want to have an honest money. Now, I think, you know, fiat currency is fine for buying your cup of coffee, you know, your groceries, and people will probably still continue to do that. But Bitcoin allows people to vote with their feet. You know, some people have called it digital gold. So if all hell breaks loose here and we become a totalitarian dictatorship, you can carry your wealth in your pocket and go somewhere else. You can vote with your feet. And uh, so that's what Bitcoin does. And I think, you know, uh, the other pillar of the hope for freedom survival is Elon Musk because, you know, he's the richest man in the world and he now gets it. You know, he voted Democrat all of his life and then he kind of woke up and, and saw that this, hey, wait a minute, these people are not for freedom at all. These people are for, ta ta for totalitarianism, a high-tech kind of feudalistic totalitarianism, push-button totalitarianism. I think that uh, Edward Snowden, I think, coined that frame phrase or turnkey totalitarianism and that's what big tech is. Uh, they can, they can, they can disappear you with a push of a button in terms of social media and your internet presence. So, so uh, Bitcoin pushes back against that, but Elon, with his purchase of X, also pushes pushes back against that. And so, I feel that I have I feel like I have a lot of hope because I didn't have much hope really before Elon purchased Twitter and turned it into X. Uh, because yeah, Bitcoin is cool. You do need you do need to sound money. Uh, and if government controls your money, they can control you. And of course, you know, they're coming out with programmable money, right? CBDCs, central bank uh, digital currencies. Uh, China's rolling this out in China where they can turn off your money or they can program your money so that uh, you can only buy certain things, uh, can't buy other things. Uh, they could turn off your money if they don't like what you're saying. Uh, so uh, you know, Bitcoin is a is 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 the safeguard from that. It's your it. I call it the Second Amendment for your money. Yeah, it's extremely powerful and potent. Yeah, and I completely agree. Mike Benz, what he's done to eliminate what's going on behind the scenes of the censorship industrial complex is incredible. We had him on the show, I think, three months ago. And it was yeah. an incredible discussion, and it is crazy. You go back. I mean, this goes all the way back in the 50s or 60s with Operation Mockingbird, yep. where the yep. CIA was directly um, embedding themselves with the media agencies to spread these narratives and propagandize the American people. And it's it's like whether it's you writing about the ethos in the 80s, uh, the CIA via Operation Mockingbird sort of propagandizing everybody, it's really metastasized to a boiling point, I think. Yep, and the education system. Today. The education yes. system is, of course, part of that, and um, and uh, part of the it's part of the root of the conflict. I think with my daughter, which I don't think I have a conflict with my daughter. I think uh, you know we'll we'll <laughs> we'll get back together and smooth things over. But um, I do think she was brainwashed in large part by her school, by the schools she attended, uh, particularly Northwestern University. I saw a real kind of change there. Uh, I went to college in Chicago too. It was pretty oh, okay. prevalent throughout the whole city. Yeah, it's just, it's just, well, you know, uh, a lot of this started with Bill Ayers. Uh, Bill Ayers, I don't know, do people know? I think Bill Ayers was the founder and uh, was the founder of the Weather Underground, which was a terrorist mm -hmm. group in the 1960s. Yeah, yeah Jesse and they, Bodine. Was yeah, just the, all those people, uh, Bernadette, uh, was it Bernadette Dorn, I think his wife. And they, they, they literally bombed a police station. Uh, 
they bombed this, I think the CIA and uh, some other uh, government facilities. No one was killed, but you know they were bombing things, and um, they were a violent group. And uh, he didn't, he never served time in prison because he got off on a technicality because of uh, illegal wiretaps, I guess, by the FBI, or at least that's what it was ruled. So. They basically let him off in a technicality or some kind of probation or something. So then he became a professor, you know, a university <laughs> professor, this former terrorist. I mean, and he, he admits all this in his book. So I'm not saying anything that would be libelous. And then, but he uh, then started a, a project in Chicago to take over the public schools and to write the curriculum. And I think he got a $49 million grant from the Annenberg Foundation. And he was very close with Obama. You know, there were community community organizers together, and he basically set the blueprint for the Chicago public school systems. And we see we see how that how well that has worked out. That's uh, that's what we have today. That's basically the Bill Ayers public school model. Uh, so he's the architect of that, and then that be, of course became nationwide because they know that the left used to talk talk in the 60s a lot about the long march through the institutions and long march refers to Mao Zedong's long march in China to take over China and so they wanted to do the long march through the institutions so Bill Ayers and his people were were part of that and so he started in Chicago with Obama and then Obama he launched or helped launch Obama's political career out of his living room when he put up Obama or they worked together to put Obama up for the uh, Illinois State Senate, and then, you know, the rest is history. O Obama was a very charismatic, articulate character, became a U.S. senator, and uh, and then president. So, so that's uh, it. But they, but the focus, the point there is that Bill Ayers understood that if he could take over the education system, if he could control the curriculum. Uh, they could eventually control the country because if they can capture the minds of young kids and brainwash them, uh, you know, you've got the future of the country. And that's what they mean by the long march through the institutions. So it kind of started in these woke, uh, not well, these victim studies departments and at the elite colleges in the 19. 70s in the late 1970s and then it kind of uh, then then it spread among the universities and then eventually it trickled down to the public school system uh who followed the bill Ayers model so uh and then of course the teachers unions are another the teachers unions really control the public schools and you know i say in one of my videos you know in my dust up with my daughter there that really parents should not send their kids to school at all should not certainly not send their kids to an elite college it's a complete waste of time and money now. Nothing of value is, is learned there. Of course, you know, exceptions would be for things like engineering or maybe you want to become a doctor or something like that. But for the most part, very marketable skills can be learned, you know, just studying online, taking the courses you need at a local community college and not wasting hundreds of thousands of dollars in all this time uh, going to school and essentially getting brainwashed and really learning nothing of value, nothing uh, no marketable skills that will actually help you be successful in life. And I actually wrote another book. I'm not trying to pump my book, but I wrote another book um, that titled Win Life, and it's aimed at kids and, and early uh, young adults, success, success skills schools don't teach. So basically, uh, you know, this, the success, success skills can be learned on your own. Uh, just go online, go take local community college courses, and homeschool your kids. Don't let your kids go to the public schools. And Elon Musk has said this uh, many times recently. He said that basically the schools are just a colossal waste of time and money, and that you'd just be better off learning the skills on your own. Everything you need to succeed can be learned online, or almost everything. And the things that can't be learned online, do it at community college.
Yeah, I don't want to pump my uh, pump my horn too much here, but I went to school in Chicago. Chicago was mm. a fun city. Mm. We did not have an attendance policy at DePaul University, and so I would skip class and just teach myself the curriculum on Khan Academy and then go. Right. I was setting I was setting the curve on some of the tests in my economics classes, and it was just oh, that's teaching awesome. myself. And yeah, you don't need it. And that's like the one thing I wonder too with this long march that's been decades in the making. I wonder. I don't wonder. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty confident because I do think the pendulum is beginning to swing back in our direction as the insanity and the chaos of the results of the long march begin to collapse in and of themselves. Like they started yep. this long march back in the 70s, 60s, and 70s. Um, mm-hmm. Did not foresee the emergence of the internet age and communications technology, social media, and the ability to teach yourself and access information online. And so it's sort of eroding their attempts to finish this yep. long march is like Absolutely. right towards the end it's like oh we don't need you guys anymore we don't need to go to university to get brainwashed i can go to the yep. university of salcon and learn all these really uh um, absolutely all any subject i want to I mean, Harvard's basically become a laughingstock, right, with this uh, Claudine Gay plagiarism, you know, president of Harvard plagiarizing, and she's clearly a affirmative action hire. You know, she's president of the most prestigious uh, college in the world, really. And uh, Harvard's a laughingstock. I mean, it's, it's just no... It's just a waste of money and time to go to a place like that. It's not that prestigious anymore. You know, it's uh, just because of all this, the the education has become so corrupted, uh, the curriculum and so forth. Now, obviously, you know, if you go into medical school, it's great to be, you know, go to Harvard Medical School. That that would be fantastic. But, you know, but for most students, I think Harvard is a complete waste of time and money. Yeah. 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 I think more people are starting to realize that. Um, Yeah. Gen Z. That's a, that's the thing too, is I've noticed because I've got friends who have younger brothers and sisters who are Gen Z, and there seems to be um, a demarcation within that generation where some yeah. realize that things are really screwed up and are sort of rebelling against the the attempted brainwashing that they're subjected to, and then the other half has been completely co opted and is completely woke and believes the world's yeah. gonna end. I do see a huge change among young people. Um, you know, these videos that I, you know, responding to my daughter, a lot of young people are really resonating with it. And um, and you can see that they, they have been, in a way, red-pilled uh, to reality. And a lot of them, you know, I think this whole inflation thing, the money printing thing, and the, the problem that Bitcoin solves, which is the fiat money printing press, which is really unlimited taxation. It's infinite taxation. It's, you know, as you know, uh, the dollar has lost 98.5% of its value since 1971 when we went off the gold standard, when gold was $35 an ounce back then. Now it's over $2,000 per ounce. So, uh, you know, instead of paying $45,000 for an average car today, you should be paying $800 for the same car. And so stu- so young people are seeing this. They can't afford to buy groceries. I mean, with the technology, technological advances, Technology pushes prices down about two to three percent per year, theoretically, but of course they print the money, and we don't see that. It's just another, you know, theft operation by government. It's counterfeiting. Uh, it, it's illegal if you or I counterfeit money. Uh, so, um, so what's happening is their their purchasing power is being stolen now. 
you know, for for somebody like say in my position or your position, let's say we're in the top five percent or something, we can afford to buy assets that tend to appreciate in value, whether it's real estate or the S and P five hundred, you know, or now uh, Bitcoin. Uh, but the average person out there who is on a hourly pay or a fixed wage, uh, they're getting killed by inflation. They're getting killed by the money printing press because, as we know, and as I think as you know, Marty, the the, the CPI, the inflation number that is being released by government every month, is a completely phony number. Uh, it's at least it it underscore it understates inflation by. It, there's there's a debate about this, but it's understates it by four to seven percent, say. So uh, if the CPI, Consumer Price Index, that's the official inflation number that's released by the government every month, if they're say, if they're telling you it's three percent, well, it's really more like seven percent inflation. And the way you know that is by looking at the price of gold and the price of come well, by looking at the price of gold against the against the dollar. Uh, that's that's how you know that the CPI is. Uh, the, the official government inflation number is phony. And of course, Bitcoin, you know, is a big improvement over gold because it's transportable. You can't carry your gold bar with you uh, very easily. Uh, it would be hard to carry a gold bar through an airport or across a border in case uh, all hell breaks loose here and you have to get out with your assets. Uh, and Bitcoin allows you to carry your wealth in your pocket. So that's, uh, that's a huge improvement. You can carry it in your brain if you want to. If you can, you carry it in your brain if you words. remember a twelve word, twelve words. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and the, but the gold thing—it's kind of funny, uh, Marty. That my wife, she escaped from communism when she was thirteen. She's Laotian, and uh, she managed to get across the Mekong River. And her mom was instrumental in kind of planning the escape from the family when the communists took over. I guess in nineteen seventy-five. Uh, and uh, this is like a killing fields type story. And so she uh, and her mom and other siblings managed to get across, taking different routes through the jungle and so forth. And she got across the, uh, she and her mom got separated. Wanda at that point was 13, but her mom had sewed gold into the fabric of her clothing uh, so that if they get separated, that she would have a way to potentially buy her way uh, across the border or buy her way to, you know, if across the Mekong River was Thailand. And uh, so that, so yeah, so so Wanda's very biased to gold, you know. So she she says, "Why are you buying Bitcoin? Buy gold," you know. So <laughs> yeah, so 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 she wasn't. But now now of course that Bitcoin's at sixty three thousand, and you know she's happy about that. But uh, yeah, she was she was definitely for gold. She was not not sold on Bitcoin at all. But uh, because you know because gold literally saved her life when her mom sewed the gold into the fibers of her clothing, and she's able to get out. And she oh this is and this is kind of interesting too. She so she made her way five days uh, walking by herself in the jungle, found her way to a, a, a Thai ref, a refugee camp in Thailand, and uh, stayed there uh, with her family. Actually uh, was there also. Got there, found their way there because the refugee camp they all knew where it was sort of generally. And um, uh, they stayed there for 18 months and uh, she got over here. Uh, and then her mom died shortly after after she got here. And uh, well, didn't die, but uh, got a stroke and became an invalid and couldn't speak anymore and then, and then died later. But so basically Wanda had to raise herself in this country at age uh, 14, I guess by the time, 14 or 15, by the time she got here. And she was just plopped in the school and, and she didn't know the the, the language at all and um she had to learn she had to navigate school there was no such thing as a laotian to english dictionary so she had to use a thai to english dictionary and uh she ended up getting a b average in school and um and uh she 
went to community college and she learned some skills there, learned some desktop publishing skills. And she got hired by Geico to lay out the newsletter and to do some data entry. And then she took a course at the community college and had to be a legal secretary. And uh, Geico moved her into her legal department and she was employee of the month for the whole corporation five times so that, you know, because she just never missed work no matter how. how. And uh, so she would say, she would look at these wokesters, you know, these people complaining about the how tough it is to be an American. Oh, and then she, she also... Uh, was on the side. Her side hustle was to buy rental properties, uh, little uh, you know, uh, little units, and she would rent them out. And so she literally was getting sort of rich doing uh, rental properties. And uh, you know, here's this person that came over, not even knowing the language, escaped con- communism, got across the Mekong River. You know, came here when she arrived. She had one dress and a pair of sandals when she arrived in San Francisco. Uh, and then she ended up in Maryland and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, the, the point is that she just thinks that these people who are complaining about life in America and how tough it is and they try to claim some sort of victim status. I mean, when you look at her life, I mean, it, it, it's a story. Her, 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 her story is a story right out of Killing Fields, if you've seen the, uh, seen the movie. Yeah. It's insane. And like, it's insane. I think <laughs> it's, well, the whole concept of victimhood, it's really corrosive to society and it's really... Mm-hmm. It's yeah. racist. It's sexist. It's it's all the it's prejudice. It's really telling people like, hey, you you don't have any ability yourself to to right. actually pull yourself up from your bootstraps. You are being subjugated by something. Yeah. Wanda's story but, is a complete. Yeah, well, it's, just, it's just incredible. Complete. Yeah, um, basically, <laughs> it's a complete it just reputation. Says, this is not true at all. Yeah. Um, but but the it seeped into our society, and I, I'm really interested to get your perspective on this because. You've been in the advertising industry. Advertising uh, is really around messaging and connecting with people. Like yeah. That's the one thing, the weather underground and the whole long march, um, the whole movement behind this long march have done really well is like the messaging. They really know how to use victimhood and language around victimhood to really push at people's reptilian instincts to react to fear or um, the feeling of being oppressed. And that's what I wonder moving forward is we can – like, how can we use messaging to poke at other reptilian um, yeah. sort of reactions to language that, that paint a more optimistic and mm-hmm. abundant future? Well, the, vic- the victim thing, you know, it's, it is a human instinct. Let's say if you're not being successful, it's human nature to want to blame some outside force for that, right? So that's uh, – they're sort of tapping into a natural human tendency – uh, to say, you know, okay, the problem, the reason I'm not successful is, you know, slavery, you know, 150, 200 years ago. So that's that's the reason. Um, but, you know, if you look at black people who immigrate to, from Africa to here, they're doing extremely well. Most of them are Republican and, and they're they're building businesses and they're, they're you know, they, they basically come from a Wanda type situation where they had nothing in Africa. They come over here and they're successful. So, you know, there's, and then they, of course they'll say that the, the left will say, well, that's not, that's not what we mean by institutional racism, you know. So it's not about the results. You know, it's uh, it, racism is about discriminating against people because of their skin color. And when you point out that people from Africa or even people from the Bahamas, you know, who come over here and they build businesses and they're they're very successful and uh, they they're not steeped in this woke ideology at all. Yeah. And it's uh... that's why I say, you know, sometimes I think the conservatives, obviously, we want a secure border. 
I'm for lots more immigration. I just want to make, you know, I want to screen out the uh, the cartels and the, the criminals and the bad people. But but basically, you know, if you take a look at the people who are getting here from Venezuela and Central America and places that have complete collapsed economies, they're voting 78, 80% Republican, you know. So uh, it's the people who, you know, the people from Mexico, because they're right on the border, it's easier for them to get, for them to get in. And the Puerto Ricans tend to be more Democrat. But, you know, the people who are coming from Central America, they are conservative. They are pro-family. They are pro-entrepreneurship. They love America. They're happy to be here. So if we, could just, if we screen out the criminals and bring in the people who are going to be productive, uh, America would be, would be good. We need actually more people. You know, Elon Musk has talked about this, the, the birth earth, that, that basically we're not even at replacement level for our native population here. Uh, it's like, I think replacement level is two point something babies per couple and uh but you know we're down at 1.6 so we're basically disappearing without an increase in population so uh we do need immigration but it just needs to be the right people we need to control our border so um yeah i had this conversation last week with matthew mizinxious which is the whole border situation the fact that it's just been left wide open for years and millions of people have been able to stream in it's really muddied the water around the conversation of immigration like there's right. obviously a clear distinction between illegal and legal immigration of course yeah. we want to have a robust legal immigration system where we can lots of legal immigration i'm all for it especially like from india yeah. you know com- more computer engineers and you know yeah absolutely uh-huh. yeah and then going back to like the birth rate problem that we have with the incumbent population the native population here the United States, like I think this is a combination of the money problem and the woke ideology and the money. It's very hard. For- money is very important. You know, so people, Marty, uh, and I, somebody needs to really maybe do a book on this is is when you corrupt the money, you kind of corrupt the morals, you corrupt the uh, work ethic, you corrupt a lot of things that, uh, you know, inflation. People say, for example, they say, well, we need a little bit of inflation. We need a little bit of money printing to kind of grease the skids of the economy to create more velocity of the money so that people just won't want to hoard their money. But I think that's wrong. I mean, if let's say we have a money that is just really rock solid, you know, uh, and maybe it's going up in value against fiat currency. But are you really not going to buy an iPhone if you need an iPhone because you don't want to spend your Bitcoin or spend your gold coins? Of course not. You're, you're going to buy the iPhone. And if you look at the 19th century, you know, we were on the gold standard. Uh, for most of the 19th century, you know, we went fiat money printing to pay down civil war debts and to pay down revolutionary war debts. But for much of the 19th century, the boom times of the 19th century, we were actually on the gold standard. Paper money, paper money, paper dollars were gold certificates. You could go to a bank and cash them in for actual gold coins. And it was a death penalty offense in those days. And by the way, we had no, we had no central bank in those days. And uh, the banks issued the, uh, they had to have reserves, gold reserves, and they'd issue their gold certificates and uh so you'd get a certificate from like the bank of kansas city or the bank of new york or whatever and uh, you could you could redeem these certificates for gold and and if anybody was caught counterfeiting uh printing up fake gold certificates it was a death penalty offense counterfeiting was a death penalty offense uh, that's how serious it was and you know and there, there were some problems with the whole free breaking banking system but that was a boom I mean, no one can argue that the 19th century wasn't a tremendous uh, economic explosion going on in America. Alexis de Tocqueville came over here in, I guess, uh, 1830, and to chronicle America's just stunning economic success, uh, uh, wrote Democracy in America. 
because he wanted to find out what was going on here. What was making America so successful? Well, what was making America so successful was freedom. People were free. Uh, and banks could issue their currencies, their gold certificates. It had to be backed by actual gold. Otherwise, that would be fraud and death penalty offense. So, uh, yeah. So, no, I don't think we need to have inflation to have a robust economy. No. It's insane. It's, it's, it's going back to going back to language. It's double speak. Like the Fed's dual mandate is one full employment and two price stability, and they achieve price stability by targeting a two percent inflation rate. So they literally they target double that, speak. Yeah. They double speak and, in their mandate, which is like price stability, but we're going to target prices going up. And even if they do achieve the two to three percent, let's say true inflation, you know, true money printing, you still they're still stealing the two to three percent of what technological progress allows everything to get cheaper because farming gets cheaper because you know it, farming is much more efficient today than it was like 30 years ago they've got robotic tractors and ai and it's just mass farming but um so all groceries should be getting cheaper but they keep getting more expensive because not only is the fiat money printing not only is the official inflation rate a phony number by you know four to six to seven percent not only is that phony uh but you also have that extra two to three percent price decline that should be happening because of technological progress. Yeah. And it's like we should <laughs> it's and the government. What I'm most passionate about these days is the energy sector, because I think energy alongside money, these yep. are the two most important tools that we leverage every day. We cannot do this podcast right now without energy. Right. I have a bunch of lights. I can see you have lights behind yep. you we're using the internet and people take for granted and again i hope um this is going back to education this is one thing that i think don't send your kids to the school but you should have like a curriculum if you do send them to school make oh, sure yeah, that yeah, they're yeah. teaching kids about finance money and energy systems um and what we're doing here in the united states to completely degrade the reliability of our energy systems with this woke movement towards net zero carbon emissions is completely asinine it's if these people these zealots are successful in quote-unquote transitioning us to a green energy grid they're going to kill more people than the climate ever could well i, I can refute the climate uh climate crisis hoax what i call it with just one fact okay today uh the atmosphere uh CO2 in the atmosphere is about 200 parts per million, 220 parts per million. In the age of the dinosaurs, it was over 2,000 parts per million. So literally five times more CO2 in the atmosphere was present during the age of the dinosaurs because of all the volcanic activity. We have less volcanic activity today because I guess the, the Earth's core is cooling slightly. Plus there's cycles with the sun and the orbit and all this stuff. But they had literally five times more – there was five times more CO2 in the atmosphere during the age of the dinosaurs than there is today. And there was plenty of life on the planet during the age of the dinosaurs. A little too much life, actually. But uh, yeah, so I don't think, in fact, you know, plants need a, need, a, need a minimum level of CO2 in the atmosphere to survive. And I believe it's uh, 150 parts per million or something like that. It's right around there. So if, if, if CO2 in the atmosphere dips below that, all plant life dies, right? So then we die, right? And we're actually pretty close to that. You know, we're at like 220 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere. So we actually need more CO2 in the atmosphere. I'm a CO2 maximalist myself. The, yeah. Again, language, CO2 pollution, emissions. <laughs> that's, like, that's what they're doing. They're conflating pollution and language. Of course, we want clean water and clean air, but CO2 is not has, has nothing to do with that. 
Yeah, and that's another another beauty of the Bitcoin network, particularly Bitcoin mining, is it affords us this ability to be as efficient as possible. Like I think I'm, I like to consider myself environmentalist. I'm a, I'm a surfer. I go to the beach. I like to clean up the beach. I don't like dirty beaches. I will clean up the trash and make sure I leave the beach uh, as good or if not better than when I when I got there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the other thing they conflate. Like if you don't believe in this climate hysteria, you're anti-environment. It's like, no, that's not true. No, Bitcoin not mining all. provides us the opportunity to like, there's literally an ironclad argument. It's like, no, we're human. Yep. We're humans. There's 8 billion people on the planet. We all need energy. If we want to flourish, we're going to create more energy. But while doing that, we'll be as efficient as possible mm-hmm. by soaking up all the excess natural gas on upstream oil and gas fields and stranded wells and all the excess uh, electricity capacity on grids with Bitcoin mining. Exactly. We'll sure so excess on, on the grids, but also the, the Bitcoin, uh, the Bitcoin mining incentivizes the uh, dispersion, dispersal of people to where they can get free energy, a uh, very cheap energy, free energy. So you're going to get, you get solar power, you know, as the mining, uh, as the source of the energy for the uh, Bitcoin mining, because that's free uh, or they're at the bottom of a glacier or some kind of stream and they're mining it that way. Uh, so what, what Bitcoin actually incentivizes is the dispersal of the population. We really no longer need to be in these pop, pop densely populated population centers because people could now just spread out. Uh, they can have a Bitcoin mining operation and they can provide their own electricity and they're not putting pressure on the grid. And also, and as you say, they're also Bitcoin miners are using excess uh, uh, excess power from the grid that would otherwise be wasted because uh, the, the, the power companies have to produce more electricity than they'll actually use in order to ensure against blackouts and brownouts. So, yeah, but basically I think it, incentiv- it incentivizes further decentralization. That's what I love about – another thing I love about Bitcoin is it incentivizes the spreading out of people. We don't have to live in these population centers. And, uh, you know, I say sometimes – I say that Bitcoin is uh, an extension of the American idea. And the brilliance of America is that it's decentralized government. Now it's much more centralized now, but really America was mostly, you know, 97, 98% of the governing was happening at the state and local level in America until basically World War II, World War One. well, Civil War, kind of central. Whenever you have a war, everything centralizes, right? So, uh, but through the 19th century, it was very decentralized and nobody really had a kind of identity of being an American. They were more loyal to their local community and that's where the governing was happening. But Thomas Jefferson uh, said the big regret he had about the Constitution is it didn't really address the money problem. Yes, there's a, there is a in the Constitution it says that I think it's Article One, Section Ten says all money, all, all debts can be satisfied with gold uh, or silver coins. So, it, so really in the Constitution we are on the gold standard. But there was a lot of corruption in the banking system, uh, even in the, 19, in the 19th century. And Jefferson said his biggest regret was not really – the Constitution did not really fix the money, did not really fix the the uh, – you know, money could still be dishonest, you know, with the uh, – so, you know, so – but Jefferson is interesting, though. Jefferson was very aware of that, and of course there was a debate, big debate between uh, Jefferson – and Hamilton, Hamilton wanted more centralized power, including centralization over the economy. I love Hamilton in many ways, but I think you know there's some problems there. Um, he actually created the first uh, national bank, but then that got disbanded later. So uh, he, he created the national bank. Basically, they had to pay off the Civil War debt. I mean, that's a, a, the Amer- the debts from the American Revolution. So you know that created centralization. It created government control over the money. But Jefferson saw a big problem with that, and uh, you know I think Jefferson is right. I mean, you know, yeah. 
I think so. Yeah. Well, not only Jefferson, but that's hilarious. It's hilarious to think back throughout history. We've been warned. I believe it was Aristotle or Socrates who said, don't mess up the money. Money is very yeah. important. Then mm-hmm. uh, uh, in, in the Bible, Jesus mm-hmm. said, yeah. don't Honest mess up the money. Honest weights and measures in the Bible, yes. right? And then you yes. have Thomas Jefferson and others saying, don't mess up the money. And we've had to learn this lesson time and time again throughout history. Well, you know, the government, you know, it goes all the way back to the Roman Empire and every empire that's ever existed, right? So the Roman Empire, it was the the currency was based on gold and silver and I think copper. But, you know, because they had to fund the expansion of the empire and their military machine, and you can only mine so much gold and copper, they had to dilute the, the gold and the copper and the and the silver. And so the soldiers are getting, this is toward the end of the Roman Empire, the soldiers are getting paid in these basically very diluted coins. They started diluting the coins and, and the soldiers could could rub the finish off the coin and they see that, wait a second, this is not a silver coin. And, and so then a lot of the rush, a lot of the Roman Empire soldiers uh, defected over to the, you know, the barbarians, to the to the people who are <laughs> to the people who are coming in. So the corruption of the money uh, was a big part of the fall of the, of the Roman Empire. Yeah, and we see similar things happening now. I'm not sure if you've seen this TikTok trend, but there's literally active duty American military members like on duty in other parts of the world, and they're on TikTok sending videos like, "Don't join the army; the pay's not worth it. Inflation is too high. I can't even afford." My life. Right. It's uh, well, actually, yeah. One is, one is, uh, so I have I have four kids, but I we also have two kids on Wanda's side from from her previous marriage, and one of the, her sons uh, did did uh, one tour in Iraq and two tours in Afghanistan. So you know he uh, he he unfortunately has PTSD. So you know he's he sacrificed a lot for the country, but uh, yeah he he. I wish he had not gone in the military. I mean, Wanda was crying when he signed up, but he went to Citadel. She didn't want him to go to Citadel. Uh, South Carolina? Did. Yeah, in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he did, and then he went to Iraq, and uh, she's just very up- she's very upset about it. Yeah. No, it's great. And that's the... Uh, and I mean, and how we treat such... the veterans is so awful. How we treat them. Yeah. Veterans are just discarded and uh, nothing real. And they do get some, you know, the VA, but it's a bad, it's a bad healthcare system and they get nothing, basically. And the saddest thing is, is most military members, I believe that they believe that they're truly fighting to protect our freedoms at the end of oh, the day. Oh, they absolutely do. They the, absolutely do. The blob, as Mike Benz calls it, has gotten so big and so corrupt that in reality today, if you're in the military, you're really fighting on behalf of the whims of the deep state, the intelligence oh, yeah. agencies, and what they well, want to do that. in terms of control um, yep. all over the world. We, we saw that with the Russia hoax, which is totally a CIA, NSA, FBI operation, you know, against Trump, you know, um, and then we had, but then the COVID thing, I think the pandemic opened people's eyes a lot because uh, that turned out to be mostly a hoax, you know, in terms of its deadliness and so forth. And they shut down the economy. And I do think that that was a trial run to see, you know, what really ridiculous things can we force the population to do? Can we persuade the population to do? And unfortunately, we can, they can persuade them to do a lot, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, so then I, and that, that even opened my eyes. I mean, I had, I was somewhat up to speed on that, but 
you know, I started to really appreciate the that big pharma and government are basically in partnership together, right? And now we have this uh, military-industrial complex that uh, the Eisenhower warned about. He said, "Beware the uh, military-industrial compact complex coming out of World War II." And I never really fully appreciated that until recently. You know, more recently, I, I was aware of it, but it wasn't a prime concern. But the more I think about it, especially with the Iraq War, um, that was lot that. George W. Bush launched, you know, by mistake, was that the, you know, and he, I don't think he did that on purpose, you know, he, I think he just was told this by the CIA, by the, by the deep state. And, and of course, the, uh, the entire business model of the weapons manufacturers, uh, Lockheed Martin, you know, Northrop Grumman, you know, they, their profit depends on a war going on so they can make more weapons. Uh, and so there is a big profit motive to just keep these wars going. And if a war ends, you've got to find another war to have. And we have like 800, 800 military bases around the world. I think China has like two or something, you know, so the, <laughs> so it's really insane just to like how big our military is. And, and, uh, and I did, didn't fully appreciate that until sort of recently, you know, and the COVID thing woke me up a little bit. I mean, I was vaguely aware of it. I was focused on other things, the attack on free speech, freedom of thought, that kind of thing. But boy, this military industrial complex, you know, the politicians are bought by these companies, these giant corporations, whether it's Boeing, Lockheed Martin, so on, uh, you know, in both parties. It's not just uh, Democrats. It's not just uh, it's both parties are just totally bought. Uh and so that's why we're going to have perpetual war. And that's another reason for Bitcoin, you know, and I think Max Kaiser talks about this a lot, that fiat money, uh, money printing by government is what finances war. And if you cut that off, you're going to have a lot less war. I mean, people are not going to spend their gold to finance war if they don't absolutely have to, right? Uh, they're good. But if they can just print up money and kind of steal it little by little from everybody else, you know, makes it a lot easier to finance a war. You know, that's how the Romans financed it. They got off the gold standard. They got off the silver. Stop print. Stop producing real gold, real silver, real copper coins, and and just print, uh, uh, made diluted coins. So, so they got the tendency of government is always to print the money, so they can conquer more territory um, and so on. So, yeah. And as a thirty-two-year-old who was ten when nine eleven happened, watched all of the Iraq and Afghanistan war unfold through my teenage years and had the 2008 financial crisis happening during that. And sh shortly after that, you get the WikiLeaks dumps, uh, mm -hmm. which Julian Assange is being essentially oh, murdered for. In so prison. horrible. Yeah. He is being literally murdered. Yes. Yeah. And Absolutely. Edward Snowden, Edward and Snowden, Syria, and now Ukraine, Russia, we're saber rattling um, around Taiwan. It's just exhausting. It's literally it's exhausting. two thirds. Yeah, of I was life. really disappointed when when Donald Trump did not pardon Assange and Snowden. And I think he's I think he will next if he's reelected. I think he will. And I I was really glad to hear Trump uh, saying sort of good things about Bitcoin because you know he used to really trash Bitcoin as you know it's it's a vehicle for money launderers and criminals. And now it seems like he says, well, you know, I, a lot of people like Bitcoin. I, I see no reason why people shouldn't be able to buy it if they want to. You know, I'm for the dollar, meaning him. I'm for the dollar, and I think we should have a strong dollar. But if people want to buy Bitcoin, yeah, I mean, do it. Yeah, I said a lot of people are doing it. A lot of people, yeah, I can't do the Trump thing. A lot of people doing it, yeah. A lot of people, you know, I like the dollar, but a lot of people are doing Bitcoin. I hear more people are accepting it. Yeah. No, that's certainly um, a, a massive shift in his messaging toward Bitcoin. I mean, when he was president, 
yeah. Steve Mnuchin was. His treasury secretary was like, no, this is terrible. We need the dollar terrible, to be yeah. strong. This is a step in the right direction, still leaning on the dollar. But I think more importantly, that town hall meeting, was that with Laura Ingram too? Or, yeah, because no. I guess Laura's interested in it. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, Dinesh, I just was on a podcast with Dinesh D'Souza. So it sounds like, you know, my Dartmouth little mafia there is uh, is waking up to Bitcoin a little bit. Yeah, well, that, that was the beauty of the question. It was the fact that the question was asked in the first place leading up to a massive presidential election. It's mm-hmm. not uh, Trump's, Trump's response while it was good and better than it has been in the past. The fact that he is forced and others will be forced to ask questions about Bitcoin is just right. great. I mean, you know, you do have energy. to study Bitcoin, you know, and he, of course he hasn't studied it. And, uh, you know, I always say, you know, you really have to put about a hundred hours of study. I think Michael Saylor says that you have to put a hundred hours of study into it. And, the reason I wrote my book on Bitcoin in part was I just really wanted to study it and make sure I understand it. And there's no really better way to study something than to have to teach it, right? You have to or, – or to write a book about it because you begin to see a lot of holes in your thinking or lack of understanding if you haven't kind of really done the, the study on it. And because, you know, Bitcoin, I tell people – I don't like to tell people what to buy, you know, no, not investment advice, right? Don't I don't give investment advice because you know do, you do get these seventy-five percent drops, and you know if you buy the if you buy it sixty dollars and it crashes to sixteen dollars, it's going to be pretty, it's going to shake you up if you don't really understand the asset. Now, when when Bitcoin dropped to fifteen thousand or sixteen thousand, and I think it was what November of twenty twenty-two. I wasn't bothered at all, uh, but because I understood the asset, I understood that it was a mathematical certainty that when you have a scarce asset, 21 million bitcoins, there'll never be more than 21 million bitcoins for 8 billion people. Mathematically, and because Bitcoin now has a huge network, I don't know, 400 million users or something, I don't know what the number is, but it's something like that. Willy Wu probably, tra- I think he tracks this pretty carefully. Um, you know, the network is so big now that Bitcoin can't be killed. We found that. In China, when China tried to outlaw Bitcoin in 2021 and couldn't do it, so the network is big enough that it can't be killed at this point, and so it'll just keep going up. It'll it'll have these price drops, and it'll be very volatile as people try to understand it, as any emerging technology is. Uh, you know, you had the dot com bubble, the tech bubble in 2000, uh, where the Nasdaq dropped like 80 percent because people are trying to figure out this internet thing. You know, what is this internet thing all about? So that's happening with Bitcoin now. And uh, I think it'll stabilize more as we move forward. You know, we have these 11 new ETFs. So Wall Street is now in the game. And I think that's going to stabilize Bitcoin's price a lot. Yeah, not only stabilize it, but for the masses who don't think critically and Mm -hmm. look for an authority figure to tell them what to do, having a BlackRock or Fidelity, whether or not. I think that's the best way to hold Bitcoin is irrelevant to the fact that people are going to be more receptive to Bitcoin just because these institutions are selling it. Exactly. It's kind of the rubber stamp. It's the good seal, you know, good housekeeping seal of approval. You know, the SEC's kind of approved it. The Gensler came out and said some, but that's okay. SEC approved it. It's kind of the, okay, I guess it's okay now. Uh, But, you know, and I tell people, you know, the easiest way to buy Bitcoin, if you're a beginner, is just buy one of the ETFs because at least if you do that, that will protect you from the fiat money printer, right? It'll protect you from mm-hmm. that. You won't be able to carry your wealth with you if all hell breaks loose. You won't be, you know, it's still seizable, it's still confiscatable because if you get in a civil lawsuit, you know, you're going to want Bitcoin on your private keys. You're going to want to be your own bank. You're going to want unconfiscatable money. Donald Trump right now just got a $450 million judgment against him against by some maniac uh, Manhattan judge. You know, he probably wishes he had a lot of that in Bitcoin right now. Um, and that might, 
you know, so so you know, if you if you have the ETF, it's not unconfiscatable money, but it will protect you from the fiat money printer. Yes, and that's I I think there's a culmination of events happening at this period of time, which is really interesting. Um, obviously, the ETFs inflation is still high. You have confidence in institutions at all time lows. All time uh, people, low. yeah, people are fed up with what's going on at the federal government level. You have people in Iowa. Um, mm-hmm. clamoring to secure the border. They're thousand, a thousand miles away. And isn't that like amazing that, one. you know, people in the interior of the country is like, wait a second, what's going on, you know, with this border yeah. thing? So I think this culmination of events right now, we're at 63,000, we're less than 10% below the previous all-time high leading up to mm-hmm. a halving event, which historically yeah. we've been 40 to 60% below the all-time high heading into the halving. It's, with Wall Street behind it. <laughs> yeah, it's just a <laughs> very unique environment mm-hmm. where... You have the capital coming in and then on the social side, I think people are more receptive than ever to ideas outside of what's being yeah. fed to them by the government. Yeah. What do you think, Marty, about, uh, you know, BlackRock, of course, is a, kind of a, a boogeyman to pro-freedom people. Uh, what do you think about this? Uh, you know, do you think that do you think BlackRock wants to just take over Bitcoin, co-opt it? Probably does. But uh, or. Will they be able to? I don't think they'll be able to. But if China can, I don't think BlackRock will be able to. But, I don't think so. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I I think that they may certainly have those intentions. I don't think they'll be able to do anything at the end of the day. Because yes, these ETFs are accumulating a large supply. But at the end of the day, the people buying these ETFs are RIAs, hedge right. funds, individual investors, and so to think people are like, oh, they're going to get all this Bitcoin and then dump it right away. It's like, well. They actually don't have the power to make those decisions unilaterally. No, they just, they just take everybody. the order and people buy it. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. yeah, I think that's I think that's right. And, and um, the other thing too is is uh, the distinction I really want to make to everybody I talk to about Bitcoin is it's Bitcoin, not crypto. Uh, Bitcoin is the only successful, truly decentralized money, meaning that it's the only asset that there are some other decentralization attempts, but Bitcoin has actually achieved true decentralization, which can never be achieved in this space again, because Bitcoin was the first. And so in the first, when, it, when the technology is first, it's really hard to overcome that, especially once it develops this uh, network effect, the 400 million users. And so it's kind of like Facebook. Yeah, I could copy Facebook, but I don't have the 3 billion users, the network that what makes Facebook value valuable is the network of three billion users. So, you know, and that's uh, makes that's what makes Bitcoin uh, really it it can't be replicated. The whole I call it the uh, immaculate um, uh, the immaculate inception, <laughs> not the immaccurate conception. The the, the the circumstances around Bitcoin's founding or, or start can't be replicated. Um, and so you have these 30,000 other crypto assets that are out there, but they're all centralized projects. They're all owned or controlled by someone or some small group. They're basically unregistered securities, and they're just trying to surf on the wake of Bitcoin success. So I th- you know, and I try to tell people, okay, no, you're not too late to be in Bitcoin. And so a lot of people buy these other crypto, I think most of, almost all of them are scams. They it's buy unibus. them because they think they're too late. They're too late for Bitcoin, so they have to get on, on, on the thing that's just starting you know, to – and uh, of course, they get they get wrecked because when Bitcoin gets a cold, you know, they get pneumonia, <laughs> they die. And, uh, you know, so that's, you know, so so I just try to steer people away from these other crypto assets. And Ethereum is number two, of course, you know, they're about a third the size of Bitcoin in terms of market cap. But, you know, they are a centralized. They're trying to be a decentralized Internet or something. They keep changing the narrative of what they want to be. But they are. Uh, 
they are controlled by a couple of people, <laughs> Vitalik Buterin and Joe Lubin. I mean, they basically they uh, Vitalik can re- reverse transactions anytime he wants. Um, it's he's done it before. They constantly change the number of coins that are out there. It's not really trying to be money. It's trying to be a decentralized internet, which I don't think works very well on a blockchain because it's too slow and clunky. But um, you know, uh, it's a centralized. Number two is centralized. You know, that's that's Ethereum. Now you have a Solana, which some people say is better and and faster than Ethereum, but it's also centralized. It's also owned and run by some people. And, uh, you know, all these, and everything else is tiny. Everything else is tiny. And uh, Bitcoin is just the the idea that that's, I don't think anything else can possibly come along. And of course, Bitcoin right now is 95% of the market in terms of trying to be honest money, decentralized, honest money. There's a few others like Litecoin, Monero, and a few others, but, you know, Dogecoin, which only only pumped up a little bit because Elon liked it. It's interesting about Elon. I think he was responding to Kathy Wood the other day. Kathy Wood noted that more compute power is being used by the Bitcoin network, you know, to secure the to secure the network than the combined cloud compute power of Google, Amazon, Microsoft, and Apple. You know, so and that's the that that's one pillar of Bitcoin security structure. That's just one pillar. That that then there's the cryptography and everything else. Um, so and Elon was very surprised by that. He said, "Wow, that, I did not know that." And and uh, which tells me that when he kind of endorsed boat uh, go Dogecoin more as a joke, I think, because he liked the fact that it started as a joke. It basically a co- copy and paste of Bitcoin, and uh, he didn't really understand that. Yeah, no, Bitcoin is really something. I mean, in terms of the compute power, in terms of the asset, he hadn't really studied it. You know, you could tell. And he, he and Tesla still owns a lot of Bitcoin. I don't know how much uh, he they sold they they bought a bunch and they they, they own ten thousand coins or something like that. So he he still likes it. He likes Bitcoin, but he didn't really fully understand it and uh, hadn't studied it and. You know, so he, he pumped Doge instead. Now he, Doge, I think, has just kind of collapsed, I guess. But, you know, anybody can cut and paste uh, the Bitcoin code. It's open source, right? So anybody can cut and paste and make a few tweaks and, and try to improve it. It's open source. But what makes Bitcoin valuable is the network. It's the network of users. And that's what's really hard to replicate. And also, as an advertising person, someone in advertising, there are a few assets that are more valuable than a brand. One of the most valuable brands, of course, is Coca-Cola, another one, McDonald's. You know, if you tried to start, uh, there's room for two cola drinks, you know, Coca-Cola and uh, Pepsi, and Pepsi's like, way behind Coca-Cola, and then you have like RC Cola, you know, <laughs> number three. And then if you tried to start a competitor, you just wouldn't be able to do it because of the brand. And Bitcoin has a very strong brand. Uh, I, most people could not name any other crypto besides Bitcoin. So that's another, you know, valuable asset, frankly, that, that Bitcoin has. Yeah, the brand is pervasive at this point. Yep. It's global. It's recognizable. It's not going yep. away. No. I think, I think too, like another event happening right now is the, the maturation of the stack being built on top of Bitcoin. Bitcoin's protocol level, you have Lightning, you have things like Fediments yep. coming to market, Liquid, other second layer solutions. And I mean, I see we're sending this podcast out over RSS. I have wow. a Lightning, I have a Bitcoin address in my RSS feed and people, they're going to listen to us talk and they're going to send us Bitcoin over the Lightning Network. I'd like to um, learn how to do that. Uh, you're, you're more technologically advanced than I am. I'm really not a techie. I'm more of a, yeah, I was an English major in college. Yeah. It's very easy. You go down if you yeah. have a podcast, you download the Fountain app. You claim your podcast in the Fountain app, and boom, you put your address okay. in there. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. And then what? Now you can just then send it out to like YouTube and so forth. Uh, not via RSS, but 
when we send a VRSS, it goes to Apple, Spotify, um, all the podcasting platforms. Um, okay. And then we uh, will it go to YouTube? Will it go, it'll go up on YouTube? Yes. So, so, so all the platforms, well. basically, and then X and so forth. Yes. No, that that's great. All right. Wow. Yeah. Trying to get trying to get the message out there, and I appreciate uh, yeah. you joining us. Well, I to... think that you know, I do think, you know, I don't look too much. I mean, obviously, everybody looks at the price, but that's not. And obviously, the price has to go up uh, for it to be do- adopted, right? So we want the price to go up. But I'm really attracted. You know, when my son first talked about Bitcoin when he was, I guess, maybe 16 or something, and talked to me about it, it was just very interesting intellectually, just uh, fascinating. And then the only question was, would it work? And it worked. It's still working. It's, I mean, it's, it's like this, it's like a snowball. It like, it's like this, uh, it's like this snowball that just, you know, it gets bigger, you know, it starts off small. It's like this. And then it's like, (laughs) it's great. Yeah. There's no stopping this. I was tweeting it last or talking with somebody about this yesterday where now we have BlackRock, Fidelity, all these ETFs out there, institutional stamp of approval. Mm. I would not be surprised if in the back half of this year, it goes further up the stack and you have more sovereign nations join the ranks of El Salvador and others that have embraced Bitcoin. Oh, yeah, I hope so. That's and I would think, yeah, that the, the Saudis, of course, the sovereign wealth funds, I'm sure they'll buy, you know, they'll, they'll get into it. I mean, you know, people go where the money is. Right. And that's part of the brilliance of, uh, of Bitcoin, that it was started by people who were steeped in Austrian economics, Austrian free market economics, Frederick Hayek, uh, Ludwig von Mises. They really and, and of course, Anne Rand also with Atlas Shrugged and her books. And they understood the profit motive and that people are motivated by money. And so the brilliance, I mean, there's so many rabbit holes, right, with Bitcoin going down. You could go down the political rabbit hole, the economics rabbit hole, the technology rabbit hole. But the structure of it where it really um, incentivizes all the right things. You know, so the miners are the guardians of the network. They process the transactions and mine and the mine. Ne- and they're rewarded for that by winning the race, to the, winning the race to mine the ne- next block. And uh, so they don't want to do anything screwy the network because uh, that would wreck their own Bitcoin. So everybody's incentivized to protect the network. And I think Michael Saylor said it best. I don't have the quote exactly, but he said, Bitcoin is like a nest, a swarming, a, a growing nest of cyber hornets that the bigger it gets, the more secure it gets, the, the more difficult it becomes to attack. So, you know, when it was, when the network was small, yeah, government could take it out, could have taken it out if uh, it understood what was going on. Uh, but I think it can't right now. And it, and, and because so many p- people hold Bitcoin worldwide, but, but also in the United States, maybe there's 40 million, 50 million people who hold some Bitcoin, it becomes politically impossible for these politicians to really go after it. And Elizabeth Warren, you know, who's been a big, um, a big denigrator of Bitcoin, it seems like she, even she has changed her tune recently because now she's making the distinction between Bitcoin and these other cryptocurrencies, you know, (laughs) and she's saying, well, you know, there is something to Bitcoin. So I'm really not talking about that. I'm more talking about the exchanges and some of these other sketchy crypto assets and okay, good. You know? Yeah. And she's got somebody who's trying to primary right now running on On that. uh, Yeah. Yeah, Maybe her staff, maybe her says, Hey, you know, we own Bitcoin and here's why, you know, maybe (laughs) that could be happening. Yeah, I hope she gets primaried out. She's uh, pretty annoying. Well, I, and, she is very annoying. Yeah, yeah. and a the shameless fake politician. Indian, right? the fa- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm happy to have anybody on board. And you know, in some ways, I don't like to politicize Bitcoin because there are a lot of liberals, you know, who are 
pro-civil liberties who are uh, for Bitcoin. Like, you know, Jack Dorsey is a, is a left-leaning libertarian, right? And I think one of the reasons he left Twitter is because he didn't like the totalitarian direction. He didn't really have control over the company. Probably didn't. And I'm just guessing. I'm kind of mind reading here, but I'm just kind of reading the tea leaves. I think he left because it was becoming this totalitarian woke thing, and he wanted to go off and do Bitcoin and make Bitcoin available to the people in Africa and the third world and the, you know, the people who don't have uh, access to banking and the U.S. dollar. And so you know, he's motivated more by, by his liberal concerns, you know, but he's a civil, I think he's a civil libertarian. And uh, we want those people on board. We want any. We really want anybody on board because uh, I think you know Max Kaiser who says you don't change Bitcoin. Bitcoin changes you. You know the more yes, people who does. get involved in Bitcoin, you know they start learning about economics. They start learning about freedom. They start learning about you know. Uh, so energy. anybody who if, gets they start learning to, about energy. If you were know? to tell me eight years ago that one knows much <laughs> about energy as I do today, I would be like, wow. What the hell yeah. happened? So I love that uh, what he says, you know, you don't change Bitcoin, Bitcoin changes you. So the more people can get involved in Bitcoin, even at a small level, you know, uh, I think it just changes people. Yeah, I completely agree. It's changed me, certainly, over the last it, 11 yeah, years. I learned a lot about issues I didn't really know about just getting yeah. involved in Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I've learned a lot from this conversation. I really, was, this was an incredibly fun conversation. I Really appreciate you joining me on such short notice. This was oh, thank you. Oh, I do have one request. I'm a huge fan of Whitney Webb. Um, mm-hmm. and I, so I know that you, you had her on several times. I would love to have her on a podcast, or just because I've read her book, you know, One Nation on a Blackmail. I, I just think she's awesome, and I understand she, you know, she comes actually kind of from the left, but uh, you know, she's against mm-hmm. this, uh, you know, which I think is awesome. So I just like to, uh, you know, talk to her and maybe have her have her on a podcast if she'd love to do it because I'm like her biggest fan. <laughs> I'll hit her up. I'll ask her. <laughs> so, <laughs> she's she she goes on a lot of podcasts, so I wouldn't be surprised yeah, if you two end up yeah. talking. And I'm sort of small, you know, I'm just, I'm just uh, kind of getting, I, I, I had no desire to be involved in social media. I had my business and, you know, advertising agency. I sort of got plopped into it a, you know, a couple of weeks ago or last week and said, oh, okay, I got people watching. Let's teach them about Bitcoin and some of these subjects. And when life hands you lemons, you, you make lemonade. Seems Absolutely. like you're doing just that. <laughs> so. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. This was fascinating. We'll have Thank to do you, it again Marty. at some point. Great to be on. All right, that's all we got today, freaks. Peace and love.